Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Madeline Hayden is today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast. She's the founder and CEO of Nut Pods, the best-selling non-dairy creamer brand and an Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year for 2019. Madeline developed Nut Pods based on a personal need, a rich and creamy, dairy-free coffee creamer without artificial ingredients or sweeteners. In five short years, Nut Pods has grown to be the number three brand in the plant-based creamer category, the number one selling brand on Amazon, Amazon 2019 Small Business of the Year, and the fastest growing brand of refrigerated plant-based creamers in national retailers. NetPods also placed number 13 in the 2019 Inc. 5000 list of fastest growing companies in America. The brand's success is driven in part by Madeline's unconventional route to market, starting with direct-to-consumer prior to expanding into traditional grocery. Her approach to seeding brands and NetPods success has been covered in publications, including Forbes, BevNet, Seattle Times, Madeline holds a BS from the University of Washington and an MBA from Seattle University. She's a friend, an amazing community member, mother and wife. Welcome, Madeline. Thank you so much. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. I'm loving your background with the nut pods. Um, I'm going to get into rapid fire. I don't know if you've heard the podcast, but I always start with rapid fire. What is the most popular nut pod flavor? French vanilla. Of course. That's mine. I got yeah. it. It's in, it's in my copy. I brought it. You're in good company. Um, I love, love vanilla, all things. I even love vanilla fragrance. Um, what is the quality that you most admire in a leader? Compassion. What is something that people would be surprised to learn about you? Uh, I can have a temper. Oh, what's your favorite way to relax? Gardening. Nice. What are you planting? Do you have a good garden going right now? Oh, we got tomatoes, cucumbers, we've got lots of herbs, beets, uh, romaine, chard. Yeah. Oh, wow. My husband does a lot of the gardening and he's, we've got a pretty rocking garden right now. I'm psyched. Um, what is your favorite all-time movie or the one that you could watch over and over again? Um, Tombstone, Val Kilmer, Kurt Russell. I know. Nice. Easy on the eyes. Surprises me too, but superb acting and great chemistry. <laughs> nice. If you could see anyone in concert, dead or alive, who would it be? I'm going to go with Garth Brooks. Nice. We have different music taste, I think. <laughs> Is that your favorite? I do really enjoy country music. But yeah, I, I have friends yeah, who do. I just, I can't get into it for some reason. I'm, I'm a little bit older. I'm a little bit older. No, you're not. No, no. country. Not so much the new country, but the... Oh, I thought you meant your ages. I'm like, ah, sister, no, you're not. <laughs> I well, you meant, are you like older country music, like Kenny Rogers type of stuff? No, more like uh, Keith Urban, mm. um, Kenny Chesney. Okay. Yeah, more like, I, yeah, but, I like that. But that's, you know what, and I am too old for the 40, under 40, but that's okay. I've, I've gained other things with, with a couple extra years. <laughs> yeah. So tell me, um, tell me everything. Obviously, I have the opportunity to know you and... Um, I heard you give your speech at the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year event. I was so blown away. Your cute parents. I was sitting at the table right next to you. And I don't know if you remember because everyone was probably connected to you, but I was just like obsessed with your family and your story of origin. So tell me about your childhood and your parents. Well, I think one of the things I love about Netflix is it's got all of the themes that people love to rally around. You know, we're in, it's an underdog story. It's also an American dream story. And so... And uh, the great thing is that it, it's all it's all true. And so I am the fifth of six children from refugee parents from Vietnam. I was actually uh, born in Saigon, and we came over here when I was one. And my parents had been working with the U.S. Embassy during the Vietnam War, and so we were one of the fortunate families where, when Saigon fell, 
we had prepared and we were up in the air within 30 minutes. So, you know, we had to gather everything we had. And for my mom, she was pregnant with my younger brother, number six. I was a, I was a baby and we had to get to the airport up in the air because with both parents working for the U.S. Embassy, it really would have been dire circumstances for my family. And so we made our way to Camp Pendleton in California, and then we um, encountered a little bit of uh, protectionism, and you know the governor at the time didn't want Vietnamese people taking Californian jobs. And a wonderful governor up here, Dan Evans, had heard about the story of my family, and both the wife and the husband had worked with the with the U.S. Embassy and you know, reached out um, through his people to say, you know, Washington State welcomes you. And he actually ended up sponsoring our family. That's amazing. I remember Dan Evans. And so you were one. And how old was your oldest sibling at that time? Nine. Nine. So that, so that sibling, you have that sister, is it a sister? Sister. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What are her memories of that? I mean, she's probably got much more vivid memories of being a nine-year-old whisked into the air and taken out of her home country. Oh, definitely. And and she is the one that has the strongest roots in the Vietnamese culture. Uh, and so it was such a tumultuous time. Um, you know, these times are tumultuous too, but different in the fact that Washington, Washington State in April was not the most hospitable weather-wise. And we were in tents in Camp Murray. And um, I, I actually was born with underdeveloped lungs, so I had pneumonia at the time as a baby. And so my mom and my dad, who were one of the few like, people in our village that had linoleum floors instead of dirt floors, she went from that type of standing in, in Saigon to being huddled in the bathroom um, of you know, Camp Murray because we hadn't had permanent buildings built by then and just to keep me a little bit you know warmer from the wind from the tents and so I think that has been so much of my history of like seeing my parents where you know they were very affluent in Mm -hmm. Mm Zion and yet circumstances take them to this country where they never what's the lifestyle when you're affluent in Saigon I'm trying to like paint a picture because I always have a vision and then I'm like maybe that's not right you have a house um that you own as a as an individual you know as a like single house dwelling Mm -hmm. Uh, we had linoleum we had nice furniture we had a car and motorcycles Mm -hmm. Uh, you know we had we we had plentiful things, whether or not it was clothes or food. Uh, when we had different religious celebrations, my, my parents are Buddhist. Um, I'm since Presbyterian, but they, you know, would host families over for big feasts, whether or not it was like an anniversary of a, of a relative's death or whether or not it was for the Lunar New Year. It was a big celebration and big celebrations cost money. And so being able to do those type of things and host mm-hmm. uh, was a big part of, of sharing in our, in our culture. Mm-hmm. And, and so when you came here, what was your dad's job? So my dad went from being pretty high ranking uh, to working a machinist job, midnight shift uh, for a local cannering company. And my mom, who I don't know exactly the, the military equivalent in the South um, Vietnamese army, but she had about 200 people underneath her. And she ended up uh, sewing curtains for American Draper Company. And then being a circuit assembler, like think about a, a circuit board with capacitors, resistors, and soldering components on. And so for me, I've learned so many different lessons that have kind of guided me today. You know, um, people, some people like to say education is the great equalizer. It's not. It's your ability to master the language. How many times do we see other people that have graduate degrees in other countries and they're working in a blue collar or administrative job because they haven't mastered the language to articulate themselves, to convey concepts, to mm-hmm. be able to communicate effectively. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the reason why, you know, I'm Asian. Of course, every Asian parents are like, are you going to go into business or law? Yeah. <laughs> I ended up being a major in English because I realized the power of communication and being able to express yourself and communicate. 
Mm-hmm. So, um, did you have a, a what your name? Your birth name was not Madeline. No, my what my was your birth. My my birth name is Tan Fuen. And, Tan Fuen. So, and so, were you were you when you were little and you came here? Did you pick Madeline or who picked Madeline? I love that name. I picked Madeline when I got married because I was so tired. Like you go up to our burger stand, you're like, hey, can yeah. I, you know, can I have a burger? Sure. What's your name? You get to say Shauna. I get to yeah. say Tan Fun. What's that Tan Fun? How do you spell that? Oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good choice. Thank I you. Th- that totally makes sense. And so how has being a first generation American shaped kind of how you see the world and, and what matters to you as far as like the lessons learned? I love the thing about language. What about some of the things that if you're like, I could just hear my mom and dad saying this over and over again, are there messages or they weren't like that? No, there's so many lessons. You know, I think the biggest lesson that I learned just watching my parents struggle, honestly, to, I mean, how would you do if you were, you know, planted in a new country where you didn't speak the language and you had, you had six mouths to feed and to clothe. And so we grew up with very humble beginnings. We, we were pretty much raised on credit cards because you can imagine, you know, um, sewing curtains and midnight shifts at a cannering company doesn't, doesn't pay, you know, white collar salaries. And so number one, I saw grit and I saw obstacles and about how there were plenty of obstacles for my parents, but they still had to get through them in order to raise us. And they had a goal in mind, so goal setting. They wanted us to be able to have opportunity in this new country that they sacrificed to bring us here for. So mm-hmm. college was never optional. We were, of course, going to go to college because that's one thing that can never be taken away from you. Jobs. How, did, how did you pay for college? So with humble beginnings, um, how we, all six of us are, are college graduates, we went through loans. We went through Masonic Awards scholarships. We went and we applied to every scholarship we can, and we, mm-hmm. and which means we had to do well in school. Yeah. And so education was so important um, because it was a way that my parents thought could safeguard my future. Jobs can come and go. They, positions can be eliminated. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'm, I'm actually pretty fascinated by this concept of culture and how certain cultures, it's a, it's, in, it's a part of the culture to value education and to value, it's part of the Jewish culture also. It's like, it's not even an option. Of course, you're getting an education. A, a and then there, are, there are people who are like, I, I'm just curious how you even learned about the scholarships. Your parents are coming here. They're not, they're not speaking perfect English. They're working this midnight shift. And especially for your sister, who's nine, was nine, getting used to the idea of having these luxuries and then going from that to like, I mean, you guys probably a lot more in the hand-me-downs and just living like that. Oh, I was the fourth girl. I yeah, had you're like, this down. is wretchedy. <laughs> I'm not wearing this. Exactly. Were, kids, so- were kids mean to you? Did you get bullied at all? Um, you know, it's interesting. Yes. I, I had my share of unkindness uh, growing up, especially with other children. And, you know, the thing is, is that I am now a mother and I have a six-year-old and I have an 11-year-old. And the problem is that as a parent, you want to protect your children from hurt and protect your children from shame and, and all these things that don't feel good. Yeah. But I can tell you, the fruits of what you want them to have, that determination, that perseverance, that compassion, the ability to empathize, sometimes only happens as a result of them going through those those hard things of that course. you're trying to protect them from. Of so course. With all of the unkindness, you know, and we had plenty of, of good memories and plenty of kind people that came alongside us and helped us. But you use those and you mm-hmm. and you learn from that and you say, you know, I will have a choice of how I respond to this. And part of that is learning how to empathize with other people. And so for me, when I build a company, when I build a brand, you know, inclusion and kindness is part of who we are because I I don't, I don't want like other people to feel like they're last to be picked on the, on the kickball team or, you know, I don't, yeah. How are you, how are you as a mother relative to how your mom was as far as like, what are you doing that's the same or different? Mm-hmm. And, and especially because you're raising your kids around, um, you know, a very successful mother, a businesswoman. Mm-hmm. And 
you want them to have that grit. I ask this a lot on the podcast because it is a conflict, I think, for people that were either raised with money, not with money, but then how do you raise your kids and give them that grit? Yes. So I think um, it's a great question. My mom actually passed away in my 20s. And so she never got a chance to meet my kids or my husband or see all of this. And I, I take the great things about her. Like I try and be as loving as I can. I, I am a pretty decent cook like she is too. And I show my love like my mom did through food. Um, I bet your family's similar. And I think the thing that where I try and differ from her and family comes first. And where I try and differ from her is I grew up with traditional Asian parents. So obedience and respect are very paramount. And I have two girls and respect is paramount, but I want them to be able to assert themselves and be able to choose what's right for them and communicate. Now, how they communicate that is something that I can guide them and teach them about, but I don't ever want them to feel like I I did growing up where it's like, I just have to do it and I can't say no. Yeah. <laughs> because especially you want them to, yeah, you want them to have a voice and you want them to have a yeah. voice and you want and, them to be yeah. self-assured and they and to train them to know what's right for them. If yeah. you're always telling them what's the right thing for them, they don't get to listen to their own voice. Yeah. So in that part I've kind of, you know, veered a little bit away, but the values that that I hold um are very are very similar. And she was yeah. tough. But she was also very loving. Parenting is but, but doing that and trying to run a business, yeah. It's good that you acknowledge that. So you're not putting that crazy pressure on yourself, or do you? Something's got to give. And I think for me, uh, you know, what I really believe in is that motivation has to be learned that it comes from within. So if I am pushing them and pushing them and pushing them and you know, sending them to Kumon and making them do piano lessons or things like that, they they learn that they don't have a choice and two they they also don't get a chance to cultivate the pride and the self-esteem that they're going to feel when they do a good job i think there's a really important difference of like when your child has a school project or that post board that they have to do that they own it they have that ownership and if it is a b product at the end of the day and they go to school and everyone puts it up to see and they will see according to their peers about the spectrum of, of ability. And I completely and agree with that. Completely agree with that way and of parenting. So, yes. And so for me, you know, if she puts in a B um, effort, she's going to get a B effort and it's going to be hers. No, I can, I can say like, hmm, what do you think about this? But I really back off because I want her to own it. If I am pushing her saying, well, why don't, why don't we do this and this and this? Yeah. Like, you know, she, she loses the control over her project, over her work. Yeah. And then she doesn't win or lose or, you know, when it comes time to be proud or sometimes not proud, you got to have those moments too because yeah. the best thing I can do for her is to take a look at her project and say, oh, other people did so much of a better job. I'm going to do better next time. Yeah, the accountability part around it. So you, and moving on, because we haven't even touched on nut pods, and I have so many questions around it. I'm like, okay, let's rock and roll. So um, you mentioned that you studied English. You went to UW, right? Did you UW. Go Huskies. And go Huskies. I'm a dog also. Um, and when you were there, what were you thinking, like, I want to be when I grow up? I wanted to be an English professor. I wanted to inspire and motivate other people. I, I thought literature and language was such a wonderful way of being able to connect to people. And some of the things that we are reading now have been around for decades. There are lessons there, and they're also a time capsule of what was going on at the time. Yeah. And I wanted to just inspire people and, and connect with people. And then yeah. I had a series of professors that um, were very good at what they did and they also were very realistic and I thanked them for that they said it's kind of lonely and other than off office hours which sometimes nobody ever comes to you know the classes are the only times that I see people and in the academic world a lot of your value as staff is your ability to produce and bring recognition so producing publishing writing 
um, is going to get you on the tenure track. And the mm. teaching part sometimes can be ancillary. Yeah. And I thought, well, that, that's kind of not what I wanted to yeah, do. Yeah, <laughs> you wanted to be more around people. And then you went on to get an MBA. Was that straight out of school? Or did you work a little? And like, why did you get an MBA? And um, with that, I guess, what's your advice to younger people around getting an MBA? So when you have an English degree and then go out into business, uh, your it is a wonderful education. And what I would say is I would balance my advice that an education is not always job preparation. There are mm. some degrees that will port over beautifully to a job, like engineering is one. Engineering, uh, yeah. And so... I have a wonderful, well-rounded, broad education, which has absolutely shaped me. It also put me at a disadvantage when I went out to get a job. And so I learned that I was always interested in business. And the part about business that interested me was not the T accounts and the accounting. It was about it was about how do businesses solve a problem with their products or services and how do you differentiate in a sea of different businesses and competitors? You know, is it your business strategy? Is it your product? Is it your team? And so it was like this beautiful puzzle to, to start working against. And mm -hmm. so I, uh, I then went to a private university, my only private experience and you know, a very familiar route. I took out loans at the time. I was working at a nonprofit and I loved working for Puget Sound Blood Center. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it was a wonderful connection to all the values of giving back to the community and things like that. Mm -hmm. But I knew that I wanted to not repeat what, what was my job opportunities as a, mm -hmm. as an, you know, English degree. And so when you're in your twenties, you don't have a lot of like work experience to differentiate you. So a lot of it is what you went to school for. And so I went back and I got uh, an MBA. I worked at it at night. I went and I worked till five o'clock and then I headed over in traffic to um, school and I went to school, you know, 6.30 to nine. Good and then sometimes I, I had uh, study groups and it was hard, but it was a chapter in my life. And yeah. I, recognize now and now as an employer when I see someone who has worked full-time and gone to school at night I absolutely respect them for that you're drawn to them yeah so okay so you have this whole career I want to fast forward because I don't want to lose all of our time on nut pods and so I want to know about the origin sure I was in my 20s and I realized I was lactose intolerant which is terrible no pizza like milk you know, like 60 or 70 percent of jewish people are lactose intolerant yeah in I'm, sure, I'm sure we make up a big portion of your customers <laughs> well, we, we're dairy, dairy and jews don't really work we're kosher certified but yes we 90 percent of asians are lactose intolerant and so i i love a good cup of coffee and i missed having a cup of coffee that was rich and creamy like half and half i just couldn't tolerate the half and half. And at the time it was processed creamers. It was powdered mandatory creamers. <laughs> yeah. Or it was all soy with 90% of, of soybeans in America are genetically modified. And everything had added sugars. And uh, it was a lot of added sugars. So then I was not satisfied with the different market uh, options. And then I was actually pregnant I had gestational diabetes with Claire. She's my kindergartner. And so, you know, when you're pregnant, you realize what you're putting in your body and you don't want to put in the processed creamers with yeah. the artificial this and that. I couldn't do a lot of the sugar because of my gestational diabetes. And so, and, you know, it was, it was really, it was really important because if you don't control gestational diabetes, it could lead to stillborn birth. Yeah. So you started this Kickstarter campaign. How did that I started the Kickstarter campaign because my husband is an investment banker and he thought this is a niche. This is the reason why like it hasn't, it hasn't been created because there's probably not enough of a, of a demand. Otherwise it would have been created. And I'm like, well, hold up, you know, good ideas don't just come from big corporate America. And so, and as a Kickstarter, I wanted to test out, am I the only one who's really picky about my non-dairy coffee creamer? Are there other people that would want to have an unsweetened proposition? Because my thinking is coffee is so ritualistic. You can always 
choose your own preferred sweetener and sweetness level, but you can't take it out. And so we wanted to give people the ability to customize their perfect cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. So I did a Kickstarter campaign, gave birth to Claire in the middle of it as planned. And we had Kickstarter backers around the world and around the world, Shauna. So that told me like, there's nothing like this on the globe currently. And this is widespread. This really has some legs. So then I had to take off my consumer hat of like, what would I want to buy in the store? And I had to learn about food processing and about yeah. commercial ingredients. And you can't just go and buy the William Sonoma Tahitian vanilla that I bought as a consumer in my little kitchen. <laughs> yeah. Because that's not commercially available. And be able to learn how to formulate. And then it's a whole new world when you have to learn food distribution. Yeah. So and how did you learn? I learned by going to trade shows like uh, Fancy Food, Expo West. I mostly paid my registration. A little bit of it was to walk around and be inspired and sample all these amazing products, but mostly for the education and being able to learn from speakers about how to price your product, how to calculate gross margins. Um, what is a broker? You know, why, why do you need a broker if you have a sales team and distribution and all of the ins and outs of that? And mm -hmm. uh, that's, I think, by learning it all you know, you, you keep that knowledge within yourself. And mm -hmm. at the beginning, it's you, yourself, and I, anyways, you can't afford to yeah. pay. So you didn't have, you had your husband, but you didn't have like business partners. And so you, how much did you raise in the Kickstarter campaign? $32,000 in 30 days. And my husband had to keep his job as an investment banker because I was a stay-at-home mom. Yeah. And so he was carrying the benefits and the salary for our family. Yeah. And yeah. I was taking all of his bonuses and putting it into <laughs> Good girl. I read, I read um, when I was preparing for this that you took a lot of tries and a lot of failures trying to commercialize the formula. It, so what, what, what does that mean? Walk me was, through that. It was two years of trying to create something that didn't exist. You know, remember at the time everything was was processed or soy based and mm -hmm. and so there wasn't a we were doing things that that wasn't in the market yet we were the first to be almond and coconut everyone was talking about removing carrageenan but we formulated never having carrageenan and because i didn't want that in our ingredients and you know you go and you create something that doesn't have any artificial flavors or colors or any of the usual suspects of you know monodiglycerides or emulsifiers so we were really cutting edge and innovating this product that n nothing else was clean label. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, we have all of our certifications, non-GMO project verified, vegan, gluten-free, kosher, and Whole30 approved. But in order to have those certifications, you have to have a product that fits all those certifications. Oh, yeah, which seems crazy difficult. What, what's been the hardest part so far? Well, I would say in the early years, formulation was the hardest. It took two years of my life. I, if you had told me at the beginning, when I had raised $32,000 in Kickstarter, that just the commercial formulation part would be over six figures, I would have told you that's crazy. I would never do that. Yeah. If you had told me that I would liquidate my 401k and our savings in order to do this this coffee creamer company, I would have said, you don't understand how fiscally conservative I am. <laughs> so what, what was it that kept you going and where did you get that grit from? Because somebody else could have been like, oh yeah, good idea. I would have been focused on it, but I would have been like, oh yeah, one of the big guys will just come in and do this. I, number one, I was, I waited for two years for somebody else to come out. I mean, almond milk was so strong at the time. Surely someone's going to come out with an almond milk creamer. And so I had waited for two years for something to come out. And then I realized that, you know, there will come a day I knew with certainty, I could just picture it in my mind. There was going to be a day that I walk into Whole Foods and I see a product like NetPods and I say, damn, I should have done it. I should have gone for it. Because as we hear and also as we live, you regret the things that you don't do more than the things you do. Absolutely. 100%. And, and so, you know, I went for it because I thought, A, consumers like me 
deserve to have a better option than powdered non-dairy creamers or processed creamers. Mm -hmm. I knew there was a market need and, and with a product that is ritualistic and people drink it every day and just think about how big the coffee segment is. I love my coffee. So do you think that in retrospect, that if this hadn't worked out in those two years of trying to come up with the formula that you would have gotten the bug and been like, all right, well, I'm going to go find my new thing. I'm an entrepreneur now, or that this is the thing that created you as an entrepreneur. So this is the thing that makes me in some ways kind of an accidental entrepreneur. In my MBA classes, we had many, many, many case studies of different entrepreneurial, you know, journeys, some of them spectacular failures and some of them wonderful. Uh, FedEx is a really interesting one. And so for me, what always got me is the financial risk. Like I am not that person who just puts all my chips and my mm -hmm. 401k and my savings into a venture. Um, you know, but with this one, I just really felt that consumers wanted, needed, and deserved to have a, a better option. It mm -hmm. was a sound product. It was solving an actual need mm -hmm. and it was well differentiated. And I felt like I had something to give. And yeah. so, and we went for it. And so the first, you asked what was the hardest? Well, the hardest was two years of, of formulation work and lots of failed bench trials and, and uh, pilot trials. I think the second hardest was raising money. I'm A, not in Silicon Valley. B, never been a CEO before. C, a woman. D, person of color. Um, and a newcomer to the food and beverage. Like, So you make up the point oh, 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 oh. <laughs> I mean, you got every odd going against you. I was basically a blind three-legged dog. <laughs> was it, were you treated poorly? What surprised you about that process mm. of fundraising? Well, you know, business is business, right? So it's not meant to be, it's not meant to be a warm fuzzy. People ask me like, did you formulate this with a chef or Michelin star, anything other than like, it tastes good to you? And that's fair. And the answer was no, I formulated it based off of my own palate. Uh, and no, I don't have any culinary degrees or anything like that. Um, so they asked hard questions. Every hard question that they sent that was valid made me hone my pitch, made me think about my strategy or my business plan. Um, and so you, you have to, you have to control and be disciplined with how you handle situations, right? So whether or not it's bullying or whether or not it's like an investor that's being hard on you or your business. Now there's some like just, you know, um, just like BS questions like Madeline, I see you're a woman with young children. How are you going to balance, um, you know, building a, a company and raising your yeah. children? Which my husband would never be asked that question. Of course. Yeah. And so and those just, you know, you, you brush off. Well, they do say people, you know, investors, all of them that you ever ask say that they're taking a bet on the person. Obviously the idea, but they very much take a bet on the person. What do you think it was about you? Or what have you learned about yourself that you're like, yeah, this is the winning formula. I've got that little something special. I think, I think for me, I would say what I saw in myself and what I see in other people is does this person have the adaptability and the versatility to handle whatever is going to be thrown at them? Whether or not it's a pandemic, whether or not it's a recession, whether or not it's, you know, competitive forces, um, whether or not it's operational challenges. Is this a person who is grounded that they don't have the answer, but they will figure it out or they will mm -hmm. get people around them to help them figure it out? That's what I look for. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Was there a moment in time um, that you felt like, oh my gosh, this is my moment. I've got a big break. Obviously the fundraising, getting the, getting the check in the mail or through the, through the deposit, but getting a big break, like getting that Whole Foods agreement. Um, yes, but I want to tell you a story first. Yeah, tell me. It, it actually was the reverse. So Everyone tells you when you're raising your Series A, you got to get an anchor investor. You got to, it's, nobody wants to be the first money in. Everybody wants to be the last money in. It'll be a lot easier. And I was getting a lot of no's because of all the reasons that I listed, you know, that made me a fairly unbankable yeah. uh, new time entrepreneur. So one person that my husband knew um, pledged to be my anchor for $100,000. 
like my minimum at the time was 10,000. So this was like, oh my God, I finally got my anchor. And he backed out within 24 hours. He said, he, he knows apparel, he doesn't know food. Uh, this seems a little bit early for him. And, you know, he wished me luck. And I cried because I had other people that were on the fence of, well, let me know when your round progresses. So when I got my anchor, I called all those people and I said, hey, you know, we're about two thirds funded now. So if you, I just wanted to let you know. And they came on board. And then of course I had to disclose that. He yeah, you have to call them back and be like, just kidding, not happening. Exactly. And it was so hard. And I felt like it was that sorry game where you started right from the beginning again. Mm. And so, but I realized after like, you know, feeling sorry for myself about how hard it was to raise money, like he's one investor, he's one mm -hmm. person, like yeah. no one person is going to determine whether or not I succeed or fail except for myself. Now that lesson, Shauna, has served me when I thought I had an invaluable, indispensable employee or whether or not I thought I had like this, you know, gotta have partner. Um, and so the only person that I bank on is myself because I love this. This is so important. I wish we could just like splash this across. <laughs> oh, it's really important. It it's is a lesson for your kids, for my kids, for anyone that's listening. Yes. And, and I, and I am grateful for this person because he taught me it early. It, it would have been a lot harder of a lesson to learn later on, but he Did it hurt the friendship. Um, you know, he was never a friend. He was just an acquaintance of. Oh, I thought he was. A, I thought he was a friend of your husband's. Oh, an acquaintance. Okay. An well, acquaintance. that's good. Yes, and so, but you take lessons from people, and he taught me a big lesson about you know I'm I'm committed to this, and about how I'm going to bank on myself, and that is what predicated me to liquidating my 401k was because I was banking on myself. Good and job. So, um, but to answer your question, the moment that I made it. The moment that I made it was, I think, when we, we had launched in PCC. I have a soft spot for that retailer. But we also launched on Kickstarter, so we had to have a way to get our products be able to be reordered by our Kickstarter backers. So we went on Amazon. And you can imagine, after two years of waiting for this Kickstarter, like you don't want to try the product and be like, I waited two years for this? What a ripoff. And I was so nervous and we just had, you know, we, we sent the email out. We said, we're available for repurchase. We really want to hear what you think about our product. Good, bad, ugly. We're open. We're receptive. We'd love to improve on our product. And we had all of these reviews, that flywheel that Amazon talks about, about this is so great. This is what I've been looking for. I love the fact you're unsweetened. And, you know, when we, when you hear that, and it's from strangers that aren't your neighbor, your sister, or someone's friend, telling you that validating you created a product that works for them and they've been looking for it really helps me. And I knew then that, you know, that peer review, like the Amazon reviews work just like Angie's List or Yelp.com when mm -hmm. you're looking for a great restaurant. It's mm -hmm. that social proof of like, is this a good product? Well, thousands of other people think so. So it's yeah. got to be fed. And did you get into the buy box? I've learned recently about the buy box for retailers yes. on Amazon. We, we have the lion's share online. I'm proud to say that we have about 60% market share online. We are the best selling. That's and incredible. It, it, and you know what the funny thing is? We're a 30 person company in Eastgate and we're competing against Nestle and against Danone. And you this know, is I, like, I have chills. This is so cool. <laughs> so when you I just pinch yourself, I pinched myself when we were number two food and beverage in the Inc. 5000 list. If you, I mean like 13 on an Inc. 5000 list as a 30 person company you know, from the days of being the blind three-legged dog that couldn't raise, like, you know, the, the first round, it's like, we have come so far and it's, you have to start with a great product and mm -hmm. you have to solve a real market need. But the other thing too, is like, it, it may have started for me and I, and I keep the vision going and the purpose of us helping people, even through times like this, when, you know, like, are there more important things than coffee creamer? Absolutely. But well, we kind of not if you got your coffee, like you start to really appreciate the simple things even more than ever. Exactly. Frankly, everybody's home. They're not going out. 
they're drinking coffee, that the ritual of the morning, I'm drinking more coffee at home. Well, you said exactly what I tell my team, which is that we are able to give people a small amount of, of comfort. Oh, I love it. In normalcy to the day when they can't go to work, their kids aren't going to school, they're yeah. not going out to their coffee shops, but they can mm -hmm. at least enjoy a great cup of coffee at home. Yeah. Tell me about your 30-person company. What has been your strategy around recruiting? And what has been your strategy around diversity, inclusion, kind of creating that company that you would want to work at? So that's, that is one of my big lessons as a business person is that you are building a brand and a product and then you build your company and you have to have just as much intention and clarity of what you're building there too. And so I have in the back of my mind, we don't have any type of like affirmative action programs. We don't go out and collect people in different, you know, racial or socioeconomic backgrounds, but what we look for is diversity of thought and perspective. Yeah. And that's so critical because if you want people to say, Ooh, I don't think this is a good idea. And this is why you have to create an environment, which a allows them to speak freely, B values their contribution, even if it's in a, um, you know, in a, in a different objective or in a different perspective way that you thought and have some psychologically, you know, safe environment for people to be vulnerable and say what they really think. Mm -hmm. And so for us, we are so proud of that tenant of being able to be respectful and yet valuing different perspectives and we're kind. Um, it sounds so funny, right? Because but it, 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 is, it is a lot of people's values when you talk to companies and you're like, oh, be nice, no assholes. It's like, yes, it shouldn't have to be said, but it should be said because there's plenty of people who are not kind. Well, here's the thing that I learned about that is I didn't really want it to be part of our values because how are you going to screen for that? Are you going to mm -hmm. do you help old people and do you like puppies or, <laughs> you know, but how that manifests itself is, you know, are you really competitive? Are you the type of company that values the individual rock star and you, you tolerate the behaviors that sometimes come with a rock star talent? Or would you rather have somebody that is very good at their job, works well with others? And so, and some companies, and I would say, you know, um, I would say tech companies, they really need to have those rock star talents and they really need to be pushing the edge and, you know, creating like very complex things like that. We're a coffee yeah. company. <laughs> well, yeah, but you must have some competitive badasses. I read that you're in 15,000 sure. stores. Like, who knocked down those doors? Who's, well, who's selling me, for you? Me and the sales team. But I'll tell you, the, the hardest working salesperson is the product. Because it doesn't matter if I'm spinning it or if the salesperson is spinning it. What really gets us those accounts is how are we selling through for mm -hmm. the retailers we have. Mm -hmm. They're not picking it because I'm a woman-owned business or a person of color. Yeah, business. they're like, either it's good or it's not packaging. good. It's either going to sell or it doesn't sell. And we have like category-leading velocities for our brand, and that's mm -hmm. what sells. Mm -hmm. And how has, it, um, how has your business been impacted by adding on all these new flavors that you've added in? You know, it's interesting because in the beginning, I read that people were very flavor loyal and not and not company loyal. Meaning, if you were international to like French vanilla and they were out at the store, you would buy Coffee Mates French vanilla rather than stay within the line of international delight. What we found with ours is people go back; they have like their their normal. Yours mm -hmm. would be French vanilla, but then we have these fun limited time offers, whether or not it's cinnamon swirl or whether or not it's our new toasted marshmallow. Oh, I want to try that. Toasted oh, marshmallow. Yeah. yeah I bet you I would like that. <laughs> and I'll, I'll buy it. I'm happy to go get to the store and get it. Oh, well, it, it's an online exclusive on Amazon. And oh, it's online exclusive. Okay. I will get it on my, that's, I can just push a button. But we, but we are, we are creatures and we like to have versatility and, and variety. And so um, we end up, you know, gravitating towards seasonals, whether or not it's the venerable pumpkin spice mm -hmm. whether or not it's peppermint mocha and so for yeah. us we pull through these limited time offers as a way to be fun as a brand be inventive like nobody else is doing toasted marshmallow yeah. oh i love it and it's gonna be yeah i can't wait to taste it oh it's 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 fantastic the reviews are up and so in being able to have something that's new along with perennial favorites like french vanilla hazelnut and original
Yeah. And so aside from good people, is there a part of your recruiting strategy that includes passion for your industry? What kind of backgrounds are you mostly looking for? It's not a requirement. I mean, people don't even have to love my coffee. I've hired people here and, they, and they're still with me and they don't drink coffee. They drink tea. Um, they may or may not use they're, that. They're weird. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> like, it's like not liking puppies. Who doesn't yeah. drink coffee? Exactly, like, exactly. But you know what I, what I want more than somebody who uses a product or is a coffee aficionado is somebody who connects to the mission. So we're not here to just schlep non-dairy coffee creamer. We're here because we want to help consumers take a positive step in their health, whether or not it's reducing sugar or getting away from artificial flavors or colors. You know, I mean, we have nine ingredients in our, in our, in our like almond coconut line. And with all the certifications we have, it's like, have your cup of coffee, the color and the sweetness level you want, and know that you're taking a positive step for your health. Mm-hmm. I love that because that's obviously so more important than ever. And we're realizing that through COVID, right? I would imagine your business is probably on fire right now because even people who weren't thinking about health are now doing their vitamin D and their zinc. And they're like, I better not have diabetes. (laughs) Well, you know, we have become so educated as consumers about not only our, our food chain and our food supply, but also... We, we choose with our dollars about what companies we want to support mm-hmm. dollars. Mm-hmm. And I will say when everyone did pantry loading, when they gravitated towards Chef Boyardee and they got had their hostess as ways of coping, you know, I, I had paused for a moment to say, oh my goodness, like this is not going to help boost people's immune system, right? This is not going to help them be healthy. And I know we're not going to the gyms right now and I miss my orange theory too, but what ways can we self-care for ourselves and our family right now? And, you know, I believe in the whole, like, once a mind has been expanded, it can never return to its original dimensions. We know too much as consumers about the link between how we eat and how we feel. And so many, not all, but so many different um, conditions are directly impacted by how we eat. Type oh, diabetes, totally. Obesity you know, like high blood pressure, heart disease, all of it, heart disease, anxiety, depression, asthma, all of it, all of it. So, so those are the things that we can control. And I have faith. I had, I've always had faith in our consumers to know that they are going to have to choose with their dollars on how to spend. And they're going to have to like some, you know, we have people on our own team where their spouses or their, or their significant others have been unfortunately laid off. So they're cutting back on clothes, going out, you know, new, show, new, new toys and things like that. But they're investing in their food choices because that's feeding their family and it's, it's boosting our immune system. So our business is fortunately doing really well, especially because we, have, we were ready. You know, when people switch from going to retail and online, we had already a robust channel there. So we were ready to meet them with, with big arms. And so in that adaptability and being able to pivot is really critical for any business. Mm-hmm. And so, but when you have a healthy team personally and professionally, and you have a business that, you know, you're learning how to, how to settle into your new norm and working remote, like you just feel so fortunate. Yeah, I'm sure. So knowing you and knowing what you've built and, um, that you've got your children and that that's part of your values is that family comes first. How do you do it all? How do you keep organized? Are there any hacks that you can share with me or with our listeners on tools that you use? Okay. So I'm, I'm going to say something that is not the answer that you probably want to hear. I ask men this too, by the way, this is not a woman mother question. I just always, I'm looking for hacks on organizing. I, I don't meditate. <laughs> like I'm terrible at meditating. I wish I did yoga more often than I do. You know, I struggle like every working mom right now. And I, um, and what I do for myself is number one, I've learned that you have to have good child caregivers because mm-hmm. you can't feel good about 
what you achieve professionally if you feel like your children are neglected or they don't know that they're loved. Yeah. And so being able to have that support community of people that can love on your kids and help you take care of your kids in the values and the ways that you want them to be raised, you know, alongside of you is important. I think working from home has allowed me to, you know, have lunch with my kids. I am off at five o'clock and, you know, we, we um, hang out at our house and, and we do fun things. I mean, that's one of the blessings of COVID mm -hmm. right now is a lot more focus on just the family unit. Yeah. I think also being able to self-care and not have it be a dirty word. You know, my help with my children is important to me because it allows me to focus on my job. But I've been working from home one day a week for a long time now so that I can have that time. Yeah, me too. And, you know, one of the things I do is with the right business trip, I will take my oldest daughter with me and it's a special mom trip. We have mom dates so that we can reconnect, you know, and I think the other thing too is making sure that you're not hiding the fact of how you're taking care of yourself. So my yeah. kids know that, you know, mommy's working out and she's taking care of her body. And really what that is, is taking care of my stress. Yeah. That's, that totally makes sense to me. You're, mm -hmm. setting, you're setting a great example for your girls. That's awesome. What have you learned about yourself and about your family during the pandemic and during this time that you're going to hold on to when kind of things go back, quote unquote, to normal or whatever that means? I have a greater confidence that my children are resilient and they're adaptable. They've adapted mm -hmm. from not seeing their friends to online learning at home. They've been able to not only just like make do with it, but they're doing well and they're happy and, you know, be patient with them because like, even though we're talking about missed summer camps and, you know, trips that we are going to take as a family, like being able to understand their little world has been impacted, has allowed me to be just cognizant of the little things in life. And I want this slowdown period of when we take walks as a family, really enjoy nature or, you know, when we're able to have food on the table and enjoy good company, that these are the things that life is about. It's not about yeah. what you have or what you buy. Yeah. It's about being able to have the riches in your relationships. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, okay, so my final question I ask everyone is, what fuels you? What fuels Madeline? I think what fuels me is a deep desire to help other people whether or not through my products or sharing my, my experience or my knowledge, or my journey, I, I want to be an assist for other people so that um, they are on their own journey. Thank you so much. You're love welcome. It. Love Thanks it, love it. For having so, me. so good to see you. I hope I get to see you in person soon. I'll give you yeah. an air hug for now. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Donna. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.